Baseball has been a national pastime for years. It's a game, but like any game, it requires structure and definition. 90 feet between bases, nine players, nine innings, three strikes, three outs, one ball and one way to win. Like baseball, there is a clear design that God has given us for how we can live and win in life. And it all starts at home plate. It starts with relationship with God, connecting with Him. It's where we find purpose and power. What happens there determines potential. It determines what's impossible and what's possible. And it requires that we step into relationship with Him. It requires that we trust in something or someone other than ourselves. If we don't start there, we go nowhere. If we don't connect there, we strike out and never experience the home run life God has for each of us. It all starts with connecting. In baseball, it's the ball to the bat. In life, it's us with God. Well, hello, Heritage. Welcome to week two of Home Run Life, a six-week journey where we're exploring God's game plan for life. I want to welcome all of you here to Rock Island and give a shout out to our crew at Bentendorf and our crew at QC West, as well as those joining us online. We are on a journey to discover a pattern. It's God's pattern. It's His pattern for how we live a home run life. And we're using and leveraging the sport of baseball to help us more fully understand that. Because just like there is a way to win in baseball, there is a way to win in life. And last week in our journey, we landed with the understanding of a few things. One was that in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have it to the full. Life to the full. What Jesus was talking about in that life to the full is abundant life. He's talking about a home run life, and we have that through him. It's why he came, it's why he lived, why he died, and why he rose again. And we know that that home run life starts and begins at home plate. It starts at the place where we connect with God. It's the base of power. Say that with me, the base of power. It's where we receive power from Him and purpose from Him. This is where we win dependence, where we connect with Him. Once we've been there, then we can travel to first base, which is the place where we deal with the area of character. This is the personal base. This is where we win within. It's where we work through the issues of integrity in our life. It's the areas of character. Once we've gone past first base, we can head to second base, which is really the, the area of community. This is where we relate to others, a relationship. It's where we win with others. And this is the people base because it's about our relationship with others for the glory of God. Once we pass around second base, we head to third and we, we get to the place where we can win results. This is the performance base. And we're talking about the area of competence. Competence. This is where we get those results and outcomes in life that bring Him glory, and it ultimately takes us back down around to where we win dependence with Him again. This is God's game plan for life. It's His pattern. It's not ours. It's His pattern for how we step in relationship with Him. And there are only four places we need to win. It's in these four areas, but it all starts with connecting with our Creator, knowing where we come from, why we're here, and where we're going. What happens here determines the, 
the rest of the journey. It determines what's possible and impossible. And what if running the bases backwards is the very thing costing us a home run life? What if that's the thing that's keeping us from all that God has for us in this life? See, the earlier we get this pattern, the earlier we understand it, the more significant it can be in our life because there is a way to win, but it's according to God's pattern, His purposes, and His definitions. If you've missed any of this journey, I encourage you to go to heritageqc.com and you can get caught up, but I want to keep rolling in the journey. In fact, there's a a lot of people over time in history have talked about how to live life well, how to do life, but it was Paul, the first missionary and church planter, who said in a letter that he wrote that we know as the book of Romans, he wrote this in chapter 12, starting with verse 1. He said, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he goes on to say, and I put this part in your notes if you're following along in your sermon notes guide, verse 2 of chapter 12. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, there are a number of ways to live life. But we get to choose how we live it. And the patterns we choose to live by define us. They matter. Because there is a good, pleasing, and perfect plan but we can miss it when we don't understand it. You see, the world has a pattern that runs counter to what God desires. The pattern of the world says that we need to go to performance first. We need to get results first. From a place of performance and results, well, then we earn the right to be in a relationship with people, and then that gives us some kind of clout or influence that makes us worthy of something that defines our significance. But the reality is, that's not how it works. When we place everything at a starting point here, then it's all about maintaining those results. And so we will, we will use people to get results, and we will cheat in our character to keep results. We will cheat in our marriage and in our time with our family. We will cheat to maintain all of this because we are thinking that if we just do something enough and do it well enough, it'll make us into something that we become something worthy of relationship with God, worthy to to be someone of significance. But when our doing is trying to lead to being, it is backwards. We're running the bases backwards. It's an impossible place for us to sit. That is not God's pattern. Doing ultimately never leads to being. That's the pattern of the world. And if we're sitting in a place where we're trying to let our doing lead to being, we are living in left field. Rather than in on deck, getting ready to bat, there is a pattern. God's pattern is the one we need to follow. It's different than the world, and it enables us to live a home run life, to know his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And every home run life begins and ends at home plate. A home run life begins and ends at home plate. A home run life begins where? And where does it end? That's right. It begins and ends at home plate. But the question becomes, how do we do it? How do we live a home run life? Or better yet, how do we even get on base? How do we get on base? You see, most players get thrown out on the way to first base. It is the hardest and most difficult base to get on, yet there is a way to do it. 
So let's step back into the life of Joseph out of the Old Testament to find out how. Let's consider his life to see how he got on first base. We know that Joseph was the son of Jacob, that he was the grandson of Isaac and the great-grandson of Abraham. So Joseph was in the line of God's promises. And because of God's favor on that family, they were a people of influence and affluence. That means they were important and they were wealthy. But they had issues just like any other family does. And one of the issues, one of the center of one of those issues was the fact that Joseph was his dad's favorite. And that created tension in the family, and he had a special coat to prove it, and his brothers were jealous. It created problems within the relationship that Joseph had with his brothers. In fact, he had 10 older brothers, and those 10 older brothers would go on to be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel because Joseph's dad, Jacob, would be given a new name from God, Israel, and out of Israel came the nation of Israel and, and the tribes. But the relationship that Joseph had with his brothers was messed up. Joseph was kind of, he was a bit of royalty in a way, and his future was bright. He had everything going for him. He had family status, he had dignity, he had confidence, he had identity, even he had special clothes to show all that. But at the age of 17, God started to speak to Joseph in in visions and dreams. You can find his story in Genesis chapter 37, skip to 38, it continues on for a few more chapters after that. But Joseph complicated some things by bragging about how special he was. In fact, when he had this dream, he went to his brothers and he said, hey, fellas, guess what? I had this amazing dream. I was standing and all of you were bowing to me. Isn't that cool? You know what that means? That means, that means, that means not only am I my dad's favorite, but I'm God's favorite too. Cool, huh? Look, when we have dreams like that, we like that, but nobody else does. And Joseph's brothers didn't like it. In fact, Scripture tells us they hated him. They hated him. But listen, God gave Joseph that dream. And Joseph had every reason to believe that it would happen. That he would be able to go right to success. Right to third base. And you and I do the same thing. We, we remember that Jesus said that he came to give us life, life to the full. And we think that when we step into a relationship with him, we make a decision for Jesus, we expect life to be easy and awesome. But that's not how it works. Just consider what happened to Joseph next. He ends up in a pit. Joseph ends up in a pit. He's expecting to rise to success, and he's pushed into his pit. His brothers take his coat, they tear it up, they put goat's blood on it, take it to their dad and say, sorry, dad, Joseph's dead. But then they actually sell him into a lifetime of slavery. And he ends up on his way to Egypt. And the kicker, as I think about that point in Joseph's story, is that nobody comes to rescue him. Now, If you're Joseph, and you're thrown into a pit, and you're betrayed, and you're sold, and you're on your way to Egypt with nothing, you're wondering what in the world God is doing. Have you ever asked that question? You ever been following God, moving along in your journey, and suddenly he allows you to be pushed into a pit? And you're like, hold the phone, wait a second, I thought you said I have life to the full. I thought you said you'd be with me. Where are you, and what are you doing? 
You know, I was 36 years old when I stepped out of a, a bit of a fast-track career in the Pennsylvania State Police and stepped full-time into ministry in the church. I made that decision knowing that God was asking me to do it. And I believed that he was going to do a new thing in that church to reach many people in that region. But I thought it would happen as soon as I stepped into that role. But it didn't. In fact, in, immediately after that transition, things started to blow up. Whole church blew up. It was messy. Over about a year and a half, half the church left. People accused me of things I never said or did. It, it was one of the most difficult times of my life. And I wondered what God was doing in those moments. I remember spending hours on the floor of that church building in different spots, just crying out to God saying, where are you? I thought you told me to do this. Now, the reality was he was with me. It just didn't feel like it to me. In fact, it was this kind of scenario was the exact reason why I resisted becoming a pastor for more than 20 years. You know, people can cause pain in our life. But there's something about religious people that seem to be able to do it the best. And some of you know what I'm talking about firsthand. It's amazing to me that the people who are saved from judgment by grace can so quickly judge without grace. And for me in those moments in Pennsylvania, man, I was, I was stuck. I, I was in a place that I was powerless to prevent what was happening. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't even defend myself from the lies. It was a very difficult time for me. In that season and seasons to come, over the next few years, God allowed me to be stripped of everything I could rely on. My competence, my community, he even allowed my character to be questioned. And I landed in a pit, an emotional, relational, spiritual, and in some ways physical pit. I lost everything I could depend on, except him. And it was from there that he began to teach me how to win dependence in a way I had never known before. Have you ever asked the question, where is God? What if the answer is that he's teaching you how to win dependence? What if what he's doing and did in the life of Joseph, he's doing with you? That that family conflict, that rejection, that wrong, betrayal, all of it pushing you into an emotional, relational, spiritual pit so you can win dependence. See, Joseph was hated. He was talked about, planned against, betrayed, wronged, sold, lied to, and lied about. He lost his family, his status, his identity, his dignity, his confidence, and even his special clothes. So he could win dependence and bring glory to God more than 20 years later in the saving of the people through which the Messiah would come. And you and I would be given the opportunity to have life to the full. It's that important. Winning dependence is that important. You see, what we depend on most defines us most. See, we pursue what is most important to us. And, and what matters most to us says the most about us. Another way to say that would be what we value or what we seek defines us. 
What we seek defines us. We get that concept. Whether we're looking at Captain Ahab pursuing Moby Dick or we're looking at Gollum and the Lord of the Rings pursuing the One Ring, we understand that what we seek defines us. And knowing that that is true, Jesus once said this in Matthew 6, He said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, a really simplistic way to look at that is to say, if we do this, we get that. That with the right emphasis, we receive reward. But this verse is more than that. This verse tells us what to do, how to do it, and why to do it. It has a, it has a singular focus, but a broad application. That seeking first God's kingdom is what to do, how to do it, and why to do it. Our created purpose is realized in seeking Him first, daily, over the long haul, consistently, even in the pits. That means we live and serve at His pleasure, which makes everything else small. When, when He's a big deal, nothing else is. Everything else becomes second to His purpose and to His power, even in the pits and prisons and disappointments of life. My friends, home plate, is, home plate is relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Home plate is immeasurable power. It is abundant joy. It is uncommon humility. It is unending love. And it is the place where meekness and sacrifice and suffering and service are all mingled into forgiveness and grace. And it's the place that we look at our possessions differently. It's the place we respond to needs differently. We respond to offenses differently. It is the place to start and defines everything else. And if we're following a pattern that doesn't start here, it is faulty. And it will lead us to live lesser lives. There is a wrong way to live. There's a right way, and it's God's pattern, but there is a wrong way as well. There's a wrong way to do lots of things in life. In fact, let me just take a moment. I'd like to share with you a few more common or familiar examples of some daily things in life that maybe you're doing wrong and you just don't know it. So here's the first one. How to eat a cupcake. There is a right way and a wrong way to eat a cupcake. This is the wrong way, my friends. One big bite is the wrong way. The right way is to cut it across the midsection, take the lower part of the cake, put it on top, and make a cupcake sandwich. That's the right way to eat a cupcake. Are you with me? My wife does a great job at this. She taught me that one. Now listen, here's another one. Dresser drawers. You get frustrated with finding stuff in your dresser drawers and jamming clothes down in there. Maybe that's your dresser. looks just like that. That's the wrong way to do it. The right way, and I just started doing this a couple months ago. It's awesome. You fold everything and put it in there vertically so that you can get access to it and there's a lot more space. That's the right way to fill your drawers. A lot of people shaking their heads up and down. You're with me. Look, here's another one. Bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich. You know when you, mmm. When you cook that bacon, you get that two pieces or three pieces on there. You're like trying to get it so that there's a bacon piece in every bite. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is before you ever cook it, weave the bacon into this large waffle square. <laughs> cook it, and then you've got this big, big slab of smoked goodness in every part of the sandwich. Amen? Look, there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. Preach it! Yeah, but listen. You may be thinking, 
come on, Sean, that's cupcakes and bacon and dresser drawers. I don't, you're talking about best and better. Fine. We can afford the distinction in those kinds of things, but we cannot afford it in life. The stakes are too high. The cost is too great. There is a right way and a wrong way. And God's way is the one that leads us to a home run life. And it starts with dependence on him. If we don't start his way, then we mishandle and mismanage life. And we get stuck. We get stuck in our sin, in the pits of life. Even though God has a way. And we'll even resist it. We may even flat out reject it. Uh, Author and pastor uh, Stan Toller and tells the story of coaching his son in baseball. It's a, it's a great story. It's so good. I just want to read it to you and encourage you just to lean in with me as I walk down through how he talked about interacting with his son, Seth. He said, My son, Seth, has always loved baseball. From the time he was eight months old, he could swing a small bat and throw a ball. He would often watch the Cincinnati Reds play baseball on TV and then go outside and play ball with me. Seth really loved to watch Johnny Bench hit home runs. By the time Seth reached four years old, however, I became concerned about his knowledge of the game. Seth always hit a home run. Always. No matter where he actually hit, he hit a home run. No matter where the ball went, he hit a home run. I can still see him running around our imaginary infield, going into his Pete Rose slide, taking off his hat, exposing his blonde curly locks, and looking up at me and declaring, home run, daddy, home run. One afternoon, we were in the field, front yard playing baseball, and I decided it was time to teach Seth that he didn't always hit a home run. First, I launched into a significant lesson on what it means to make an out. Then I began to explain the purpose of the bases. Just about that time that I thoroughly confused him, his mother came out the front door with four of Seth's reading books that now served as bases. Together, we carefully placed the books at first, second, third, and home plate. Everything was coming together for a great life lesson. Then I explained to Seth, if you overrun a base and I tag you, you're out. Okay, Daddy, he exclaimed, play ball. So I pitched a few balls and let Seth run the bases to warm up. Each time he went through the same ritual, head first slide into home plate, hat off, dust off, then declare, home run, daddy. Now came the big moment. It had arrived. I reviewed the rules with a warning. Seth, if you overrun a base, I will tag you out. Okay, daddy, play ball. I pitched. Seth swung mightily and hit the ball towards shortstop. I fielded the ball. He rounded first with his little legs churning. I yelled out, I've got the ball. Don't overrun second. He kept going. I tagged him on his way to third and said, you're out. And he kept running. (laughs) He rounded third, slid into home, dusted himself off, sat down and said, home run, daddy, home run. (laughs) I said, no, 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 you're out. He said, no, home run, daddy. I said, you're out. He retorted, home run. I said, you're out. (laughs) Disgusted, he folded his chubby little arms, shook his head and looked at me. Daddy, My books, my bat, my ball. If you're not going to play right, I'm going home. (laughs) Is that good? Look, that's a great story. But what I love about it is that we're a lot like Seth, aren't we? When God teaches us the truth of how the game of life works, sometimes we don't like it. And we say, my ball, my bat, I'm going home. When God teaches us what it means to be tagged out, when we overrun a base, we overrun the base of character, for example. We say, I'm not going to play that way. See, there's a way that God seeks to grow us. 
But we talked last week that, that in the physical world, we start at a level of, of dependence as an infant, and we move to a place of independence over time as an adult. That's the way physical growth occurs. But the reason most of us don't grow spiritually is we don't understand how it works and that it's actually backwards. We start at a place of great independence and rebellion from God in our sin, and we grow spiritually as we move into a place of greater dependence on Him. As we come to understand His love, as we come to understand a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, it's moving from independence to dependence. It's where we move to a place where we're empowered and not just enabled where we're set free, not just set apart. Home base is the place where we receive purpose and power from Him by living His way. And, And many of us resist it, and many of us even try to reject it. But that comes at the cost of everything good in our life. Because Jesus once said in John 15, 5, He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you depend on me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do what? Nothing. That's a pretty clear metaphor. And and consider this. Jesus lived in an agrarian culture marked by vineyards all over the place, the people living off the land. And so the idea of a grape coming from a branch that was connected to a vine made complete sense to them. It was simple. He was taking spiritual truth and he was giving a physical word picture to it. It was powerful. In fact, here, I want to show you a picture that I took this past spring. I took this picture in Israel, in Nazareth. This is an actual vine in Nazareth in a place in an area that Jesus would have walked and lived. And you can see from that main center branch, there are tiny little sprouts coming off of it. And, and there's that visual image of the vine and the branches. It's, it's powerful that if we remain in him, we'll bear much fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But if Jesus were to come today in this world of technology, I think he might use a different metaphor. I think he might pick something like saying, look, I'm the outlet and and you are the cord. And when you connect with me, you have power. Did I do that too fast? (laughs) I am the outlet. You are the cord. If you connect with me, you have power. If you connect with me, you have light. You no longer live in darkness. My friends, if we don't connect with him, we're in the dark. And we stumble around and we struggle in sin and we end up stumbling into pits that we never really wanted to go apart from him, disconnected from him. In the vine, in him, there is power. It is the power of God that comes from God that allows us to connect with God. It's his power. In the vine is the power to win within where it's where we find power to conquer first base battles of character. The, the power to win within is the power of God in you and me. It's not us. It's not our power. It's his power at work in us. And if we are disconnected from him, we can't win. We are enslaved to our desires, to our appetites, and to our fears. And when we live according to those things, we get thrown out before we ever get to first base. You know, I thought I understood this until I was thrown in a pit, until the actions of others stripped me of everything that I could depend on. Through those seasons and years, personally and professionally, I found myself in the deepest, darkest valleys of my life, where I had nothing left, and I found myself in a pit with nothing but a question from God. And that question was this, do you trust me? Do you trust me? You see, dependence is always first an issue of trust before it's ever an issue of circumstance. 
A better way to say that would be that true dependence is based in trust, not circumstance. You know, God did not immediately rescue Joseph. He didn't fix everything right away. And I'm pretty sure he didn't tell Joseph, say, look, Joseph, here's the whole plan. Here's what's happening. Here's how I'm going to use it. Here's why I'm using it. And this is what it's going to look like at the end. Instead, he let Joseph lose for a season. He led him into places of brokenness. Joseph was stripped of everything he would have depended on to accomplish the dream he had received. And without those things, he had a choice of whether he was going to trust. True dependence on God rarely comes apart from brokenness. Because brokenness leads us to dependence, to his power, to his grace. And without him, you and I, we strike out with ourselves, with others, and in life. We may hit some pot flies, maybe a couple ground balls, but we will never hit a home run life. We'll never hit a home run, live life to the full apart from him. Without him, we can do nothing. See, the truth is God doesn't need more confident or competent people. He doesn't need self-reliant or the accomplished. He needs more broken people. People who know how to live from a place of dependence on him, in his power, people who are willing to be sacrificed for his purposes. I came across a quote a few years back that I think captures the heart of this. It's this. It says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible person and crushes him. I believe that's true. And I think it's certainly the case in what God did with Joseph. I've shared a few more thoughts about dependence and trust and that crucible of crushing on my blog at livesent.today. And if you want to check it out, you can go there and do that. But I want to set this concept aside for just a moment and step into our so what reality for today. You know, not long ago, I was talking with a friend about what God was asking them to do. And, and he was asking, like, what if it comes with a cost? What if it means working in a difficult job or struggling to make ends meet? What if it means not realizing personal dreams or losing something that he loved? And those are all good questions. They're hard questions, but they're legitimate questions. But I, as we talked, I think that, that there's a simple question that answers all of those. And I think it's one that you and I should consider in our own lives and our own journey. My question is this, do we trust God enough to let him define our life and not just save it? Do you trust God enough to let him define your life and not just save it? See, we tend to reject the painful and the hard, and we ask, where is God and why did he allow this? But in the, in, in the valley moments, in those pit experiences, those are the most transforming. It's the, the most shaping and defining, and God is always seeking to make us more like his son. Do you trust God enough to let him define you and not just save you? You know, Joseph, the story of Joseph, he ends up saving the same people that betrayed him, the, the nation and the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the, from famine. And then he, 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 they come into Egypt and they, they start living in Egypt and God blesses them and grants them favor. But over time, when Joseph dies, the people still lived there and the Egyptians forgot about Joseph and then they, feel, they felt threatened by the Hebrews and that ultimately what happens is that they enslave the Hebrews, the people of God, for hundreds of years until one man... Moses is sent by God to bring them out of captivity. 
But then God raises up another leader named Joshua. And Joshua walked with Moses, and Joshua learned leadership in the crucible of crushing, and Joshua makes an impassioned plea to the people of God out of his own growth journey, out of his own process through the bases. And it's recorded in Joshua 24, and he says this. I want to read it to you. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship before the, beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whom you will depend on, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in, the land, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will depend on God. You know, in some ways, I think we can look at the, the gods of the ancestors as the gods of others, second base, and we can look at the gods of the people, the Amorites, the land that they were living as the world and third base. And the question becomes, again, do you trust God enough to let him define you and not just save you, to depend on him, to choose to serve him, empowered and free with purpose? It requires a choice. We all serve something. We all serve someone. Who will you serve? When we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that's not simply agreeing to add another goal to life. It's not just the reprioritization of one goal among other goals. It is the removal of every other priority to chase one goal at all cost, to seek him. If you and I don't make that adjustment, we will never hit the ball, and we will never make it to first base. In fact, some of us, I think, have been thrown out long ago, and we've been in pits, whether by the force of others or by our own choices. By our own mistakes, our regrets, our sins, we have landed in pits and we find ourselves stuck today. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction, an unhealthy relationship, a secret. You're in those places now. You're stuck in them now, but I want you to know you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be in that pit. God doesn't just want to save you from hell. He wants to free you for life. Life to the full. But we need his power to do that. And it requires an action to choose this day whom you will depend on. So with that in mind, I want to invite you into a bit of a sacred moment. I invite you to grab your sermon notes guide. If you don't have one of those, grab a communication card out of your worship folder or other piece of paper. But on the bottom of the third page is a section that says, I today with a home plate picture. This is going to be an opportunity to seek him first, to break the cycle of sin that defines us, to pursue his purpose as we live in his power. And in some way, I'm really just giving an opportunity for us to either start something or stop something. So what I want you to do is, is just go ahead and tear that off. Just tear off that bottom part of that sermon notes guide or your communication card. Just everybody, whether you think you're going to do this or not, just go ahead and rip it off right now. This will be at the center of an act of worship for us. Uh, um, this will be an intimate moment, a private moment. So it doesn't matter what the person next to you is doing or what they may be writing. This is for you to have a conversation with God, for you to identify the one thing to start or stop, the one thing that's keeping you from spiritual breakthrough, uh, that's keeping you from getting on first base. And maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust, lying, unforgiveness. What, what is that one thing that's keeping you from spiritual breakthrough? It could be that it's an issue of independence and dependence, 
where you've, ne- you, you've held back areas of your life, you've not fully surrendered to Jesus, maybe you've never done that at all, and so today is an opportunity for you for the very first time to yield your independence to him in a form of dependence that allows him to save you and make you a new creature in him. For some, it could be something that relates to a issue or a pit from the past, something that you've never reconciled with God. Because even though he did not do that thing to you, he allowed it. And I can guarantee that Joseph had at least one, if not many, of those kinds of conversations with God about what he allowed in his life. What's the one thing? That wound, the loss of a dream, the experience in a pit where you've been sold out, struck out, left out, pushed out. What's that one thing? In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I want to invite you to have your own conversation with God, where you talk with Him about what's in the way, what's keeping you from a home-run life. And as that comes to mind, as you realize that, I want to encourage you to write it down. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Declare it. Maybe it's something you're going to stop by His power. Maybe it's something you need to start by His power. But out of a place of dependence, declare it. And then leaders at each of our locations and campuses are going to lead us on an opportunity to offer this to God as an act of choosing, in an expression of dependence. It's an opportunity for us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, as an act of true worship and dependence. It's my prayer that each of us, all of us, will take this step because all of us have something that still needs to be released, something that God needs to transform, something we need to do to take that next step of dependence with Him to experience all that He has for us in life. My prayer is that you will do that today, and this day will be a spiritual milestone on your journey of life. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have sent your son Jesus. Lord, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was rejected, despised by many. But it was his love that drove him. It was his obedience to you, his his love for us out of you that, that drove him to come, to live, to die, to rise again so that we can have life and not just any kind of life, but have life to the full. And Lord, I pray as my brothers and sisters spend a few moments talking with you about that one thing that's keeping them to spiritual breakthrough. God, I pray that they would hear your still small voice. I pray that we would all hear from you and that you would give us the the courage to offer that thing to you, to declare that today, today, we draw a line in the sand. And that out of that, Lord, that you would be able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine in and through us for your glory. God, this is a a sacred moment where you're illuminating more of who we are to ourselves. And maybe it's confession, maybe it's declaration, whatever it may be, God, may, may you position us to win dependence on you in these moments as we worship, as we pray, and as we reflect. Thank you for pursuing us. I love you and I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.